Well, there was an article uh, recently that uh, Reverend Al Mohler reviewed on the briefing. I've mentioned the briefing to you all a number of times. Um, it was a good uh, short 20, 25-minute um, overview of current events uh, from a Christian perspective, thinking about encouraging believers to have a Christian perspective on different things that happen. Um, you can find it on any podcast, I, I believe, and he has a website you can go to to be able to pull it up anyway. Um, this particular briefing, he was discussing an article that basically said that the majority of Americans believe that our nation is spiraling out of control. Um, when they take a look at the developments as of late, particularly in the areas of racial inequality, the loss of two lives uh, recently, uh, both of which appear to be racially motivated, one at the hand of a law enforcement official, subsequent protests, riots, calls to defund the police departments. The article concluded that when, when the vast majority of Americans look around and they see these things happening in our nation, that they believe that our nation is just spiraling out of control. Now, Al Mohler concluded in his review of this that it's unlikely that most Americans believe the nation's out of control. He cited the reality that polls are not often clearly representative of what most people think um, and the fact that we simply don't live like we believe the nation is spiraling out of control. We still go about our lives like normal. Uh, most of us are not impacted immediately by the events that take place. Um, one of the things that I appreciate about the briefing in general, again, is the emphasis that as believers we ought to be thinkers. Again, particularly that we ought to be thinkers about events that happen. We need to be thinking about those things from a Christian perspective. We should know what's going on. We should be thinking about these things as Christians, not being spoon-fed a worldview from a particular news media or from our friends and family. No, we should be thinking about these things as Christians from a biblical worldview. Sometimes it's difficult to do so, so it's good to have some help. One other thing I appreciate that he brought up in this particular briefing is the reality that sometimes, even though the world is not actually out of control, we may feel that way. I mean, that short list of items that I mentioned earlier, again, two seemingly racially motivated deaths, riots, protests, renewed national conversations on race and equality, calls to defund local police enforcement, and all of this in the midst of an already tense time dealing with the pandemic. Let's not forget that this is one of the most unique election cycles that we've had as of yet also due to the pandemic. All of these different things going on, um, some people may feel that things are a bit out of control, and you may be one of them. But when we think about these issues, particularly of race, racism, and inequality, have you felt like things are out of control? When you hear the repeated calls for justice, does that resonate with you? Do you feel as if justice should be brought to bear on these issues? I think most of us would agree that it does. Some of us probably feel it more than others. As Christians, we understand and agree with the need for justice in general. The question usually becomes a matter of the standard of justice and the outworking of justice. How do we really fix these problems? How do we bring the perpetrators to justice? What kind of justice is due? Well, there's also the question of what has been called systemic racism. In other words, the issues being raised are not only a matter of the individuals who need to be brought to justice, but the very system. The system in which some perpetrators operate is itself 
again, in the context of the discussion, is itself part of the problem. Well, how will that be addressed? Well, this morning we're not going to solve all those issues. I'm not going to try to, but I think Psalm 75 is going to help us to have a biblical perspective on these issues, a Christian perspective on these issues, particularly the matter of justice. If you haven't turned to Psalm 75, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll get into it. Psalm 75. Psalm 75, it says, To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give thanks to you again this morning as we gather together around your word. We pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us clarity. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Psalm 75 is in a collection of psalms written by Asaph. I've preached on Psalm 73 in the past where we looked at Asaph's humble confession of jealousy over the apparent prosperity of the wicked. All of these psalms take place in the context of Israel's subjugation by the nations in their exile, the nation's prosperity in their wickedness, Israel's humiliation by the nations, and the indignation that Israel felt over the rampant injustices done to their people. As you read Psalm 75, you get the impression that they feel like their world is out of control. And yet the people of God are confident that God is able to judge, that God will judge, that he will make every injustice right in this world. Ultimately, that is our confidence as believers. We do not ultimately trust in man, individuals, or governments. We do not look for man to resolve every conflict, every injustice, And similarly, we do not despair because man is unable to do that which he's not been made to do. We will not despair as the world or become restless as the world or even bitter or violent as the world because the world is not able to bring justice to bear, but rather, we will trust in the Lord. That is the message of Psalm 75. When the world is out of control, we can rest, even rejoice in the confidence that God will judge sin. He will make everything wrong in this world right. God will do it. As far as an outline, we see three movements through the psalm. There are a number of different ways you can break it up. But when the world seems out of control, when injustice abounds, believers are encouraged to, in verse 1, rejoice in the person of God. In verses 2 through 8, believers are encouraged to remember the promises of God. And in verses 9 and 10, they're encouraged to rest in the plan of God. Rejoice in the person of God, remember the promises of God, rest in the plan of God. Let's take a look at that first point. Again, when injustice abounds, believers are encouraged to rejoice in the person of God. 
Look back at verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Again, this is at a time in Israel's history where they're experiencing a great deal of suffering. They're experiencing a great deal of injustice at the hand of oppressors. And they often, in those times, cry out to God for relief. The book of Judges is kind of a microcosm of that, right? It shows a cycle of Israel falling away into apostasy, experiencing the judgment of God, crying out for justice as they experience the judgment of God. And the judgment of God usually involved some nation coming in to oppress them. They cry out for justice. They cry out for help. And God comes to their aid. And then they eventually fall back into the same foolishness again. Just because their sin is just like you and I. But when the world comes crashing down again, this was often the judgment of God that they dealt with. When the world comes crashing down, they often suffered oppression from the nations. It was often this, this, this feeling of injustice that was brought on by their own sin as they were being oppressed by the nations around them. Oppression is itself unjust, and that helps us to understand why they were crying out to God. And I'm talking particularly about the manifestations of, of injustice that they experienced as they were being oppressed, those particular instances that caused them to cry out for justice. We would see a distinction in one sense between what is considered, again, systemic racism and particular acts of racism. If the system is inherently racist or has racist undertones, that could be viewed as oppression in general, Track with me on this. But those particular acts, such as a law enforcement official feeling at liberty to kneel on the neck of someone who's already subdued to the point of their death, would be the catalyst for someone crying out for justice. To put it in other words, you wouldn't necessarily need to cry out for justice or to change the system until something happens to bring to the fore that something needs to change. When you read the Psalms, like this section of Asaph, you see them enumerate a number of instances of injustice, and these instances move Asaph and the people of God to cry out for justice to be done. Psalm 73, 6 through 8, he talks about the fact that there are proud, and the proud are threatening them with words. Psalm 73, verse 11, he talks about how the proud reject God. They scoff at God's ability to know and to judge. Psalm 74, verses 2 through 7, he talks about the fact that they destroyed the temple. And he's outraged at that, and he's crying out to God. They've destroyed the temple. They've destroyed our meeting place where we come to meet with you. God, you need to do something about that. Psalm 7410, he talks about the fact that they revile the name of God. God, they're taking your name in vain. You need to do something about that. Again, when you, when you experience these kinds of injustice, your only recourse is to cry out for justice, to cry out for help, to cry out for resolution. That is not wrong. To bring this home a bit, we might feel a certain way when we see people in the streets protesting or are enlivened with cries for justice. We might think that they shouldn't take it that far. But we all know that the moment some injustice hits home, the moment someone breaks into our home, the moment someone crashes into our vehicle, the moment a loved one is harmed by some violent act, I mean, even the moment somebody cuts us off on a highway, right? Our first thing is to cry out for injustice. That cry for injustice is not wrong. Well, it may be wrong for you to whine about someone cutting you off because you know that you probably do the same thing. But 
in general, the cry, for, in, the, the cry for justice is not wrong. It's not sin. It's not evil. When people take it further than a cry for injustice and insist on vengeance or do violence themselves, that is clearly wrong. But the cry for justice when injustice is done is not wrong. It's natural. And it's right for us to desire to see justice. Now back to our text, it's instructive for us to note that the first thing Asaph says, the first thing he's led by the Holy Spirit to remind the people of God is to think on the character of God. When injustice abounds around you, when you suffer injustice, the first thing we need to remember is that our God is good. Our God is good and he does good. Again, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. That is a reminder. He says, we give thanks to you, O God. This may go without saying, but God is God. He is. We can stop there. We don't live in a world where a deity has created and stepped away from his creation and left it to fend for itself. We have to figure out justice on our own. We have to figure out what's right on our own. That's not the world that we live in. We don't live in a world created by chance where something has somehow magically come from nothing on its own and thus everything is essentially meaningless with no design or purpose. Thus justice is really meaningless. So crying for justice is ultimately pointless. No lives matter because there's no greater purpose. What does it matter when a life is taken, whether it be the life of the unborn or one who is innocent of a particular crime? No lives matter if there's no design in the universe, if there's no one and nothing greater. If everything is just an accident. But again, that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where God is. And where God superintends his creation. Where God is a person with personality, with intentionality, with power, with wisdom, which is far greater than ours. One who loves and one who is, as we considered briefly last week, our Father in heaven. He is a personal God. He cares for us. The text says his name is near. He is near to his creation. He works, he acts within his creation, both to sustain and to bring about his purposes. That he is near reminds us that he will bring about our good. That's a promise in Romans that we often fall back on, that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. The purpose is a of God to bring about good for his people will stand. He is near to us. We have to remember that. The world may feel like it's out of control, but God will never feel that way. And our lives will never truly be out of control because God is near to us and he cares for us. That is a theme repeated in Asaph's writings. He said at the end of Psalm 73, the nearness of God is my good. When he was struggling with the apparent prosperity of the wicked and how to reconcile that with the goodness of God, he remembered that God is near to his people. And if we all we have is the nearness of God, if that's all we have in this life, his nearness, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his kindness, his redemptive work on our behalf, then we really have everything. To have God, to be with God, to be in relation to God is the good news. John Piper said God is the gospel. That is what he meant. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not religion. It's not membership to join an exclusive club where you get to go once a week and you pay your dues. The good news of the gospel is that we were once estranged from God, but now in Jesus Christ we are brought near. Each and every one of us, no matter what tribe, tongue, or nation we hail from, were estranged from God. We were his enemies. We were deserving of his judgment, his wrath, his retribution. 
but in Christ and in Christ alone we've been brought near. That's the good news. Remember that we have fellowship with God now in Christ when injustices abound. Remember that. Moreover, Asaph says your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds, and I think that's what he was talking about there, thinking about the goodness of God, thinking about his acts toward us. When we see a reference to the wondrous deeds of God, often we see um, either the psalm writer or in other places, we see them talk about the creation work of God. We also see them talk about the redemption work of God. So God created in the beginning, when we think about his wondrous deeds, his wonder-working deeds, we think about the fact that he created all things, and we think about the fact that he has redeemed his people by his power. You see that in um, Psalm 77, verses 11 through 20, Asaph talks about that. Also, Psalm 78, he talks about the wondrous deeds of the Lord and the deliverance of his people. When you think about the character of God in general, again, you can't help but to think about his works. God has not brought us out geographically from a foreign land, but again, he's brought us out from sin. Well, again, when injustice abounds, believers are encouraged to rejoice in the person of God. We know that God is good. We know that he does good for us. He has done good for us in the past. He has brought us out from sin in Jesus Christ. He's brought us near to himself. But second, believers are encouraged to remember the promises of God. Look at verses 2 through 8. At a set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. God is good and does good. Part of the good that God does, because he is good, is that he writes injustice. God judges sin. Specifically, the text tells us that he humbles the proud. That is his promise. Notice in verses 2 through 5, there's a change in voice. This is God speaking. Previously, it was a congregation. They said, we give thanks to you. Here we have God making a declaration of something he does. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge. It is I who keep. I say to the boastful. God is speaking here. He's declaring. He's making known what his commitment is when it comes to injustice. There are two main things. One, he promises to judge. And two, he promises to keep. We'll get to that promises to keep a little bit later. But that he promises to judge. Look again at verse 2. At a set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. I love these find these verses, these short little verses, these short little phrases that are packed with significance. God has determined a time to judge the proud. That is justice. People carelessly throw around the word justice as if it's 100% clear what everyone means when they speak of justice. When we speak of justice, what do we mean? What I mean, what I believe the Bible means by justice is this. It is an act of God to repay the deeds of men. That's what justice is. God acting to repay the deeds of men. Justice ultimately has to be an act of God because it is only his standard that is sufficient to properly render to each one according to his deeds. That is often the language that we see with respect to the judgment of God. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek. For God shows no partiality. That's justice. Who but God could do that? Who but God would know each one of our works? There's no one else who sees all. We may appear innocent before each other, but not to him. Who but God knows the motives of our hearts? Part of the reason why we may appear innocent and we may appear good is because we just don't know the motives of each other's hearts. And if we're honest, we're not always clear with ourselves what our motives are when we do things. But God knows the heart and he sees the motives. Who but God would know the exact right kind of consequence for each deed? Would you? Would I? Would a human court? I think if we were honest, what we mean when we talk about justice often amounts to vengeance, something that provides vindication for our own selves if we're wrong, vindication for our innocence, but not strictly justice. We see those who are proud, those who oppress, those who oppress us and harm us, and we want them to get what's coming to them. I mean, how many times have you been watching a television show or reading a movie or watching a movie or reading a book, and you know the bad guy is about to get it? Like the good guy has him in his sights and he's about to come down on him hard and you cheer your little heart out because you know he's going to get what he deserves. That's our natural response to injustice. Now to be clear, we do have human laws. We have human courts to decide on how to apply our human laws to different scenarios. But how do we know that we have the right laws? And how do we know that the one interpreting the law is interpreting rightly? Moreover, when we speak of justice, we often want it right now, not later, right? Why do we have to have it right now? Again, usually because of the way we feel about what happened. Again, feelings are what they are. Feelings are often legitimate expressions of who we are. We're feelers. God made us that way. Deep down, we know, we should know, that we cannot make all of our decisions based on how we feel. Certainly, justice shouldn't be thought of that way. But I think on one level, we all understand how it feels to want to bring justice when justice is due. To bring this home to the major issues of our day, perhaps we don't all understand how it feels to be looked at suspiciously when you enter a store. Perhaps we don't all understand how it feels to be followed by an ex for an extended period of time by the police on the road. Perhaps we don't all understand how it feels to be yelled at by a police officer who stops you and your friend as you run down the street playing as a middle schooler, calls your friend over, tells you you need to stay where you are, and then asks your friend if you were bothering him. Embarrassing and frightening. Perhaps we don't all understand how it feels to live in a dorm room working as a resident assistant at a major university and to have a racial slur written on your door. Perhaps we don't all understand how it feels to be patted down by a police officer when you and two other Bible college friends are just sitting in a park talking and praying. Those last three were my own personal examples. We don't all understand how it feels to have a member of your ethnicity's life taken for no reason by someone who's supposed to protect and serve. 
only to have to wonder if you're going to be next. We don't all understand how it feels in the same way, but I think we all do understand that it feels wrong. There are all those times when we feel the hurt of injustice and we cry out for justice because of the way we feel, and we demand justice because of the way we feel. But those of us who feel have to recognize in those times that we're not necessarily thinking of justice in God's terms. God thinks of justice with equity. That's what it says in our text. God says, I will judge with equity, meaning that he will judge all equally, that he will provide judgment appropriate for the transgression every single time, and he will apply that to every single person in the right way. Skip down to verses 4 and 5. Look at what he says here. He says, I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. God is the judge. God will bring his judgment upon the proud, upon the wicked, those who boast in themselves, those who oppress others, those who practice injustice will be brought to justice by the Lord. God does this on a national level. We've seen that many times. The biblical record is replete with examples. Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, even Israel, God's own people. He's judged them. Certainly he can do that on an individual level. Now you may be asking, how does God judge? How will he judge? Well, I think we have an indication of two different ways that he brings judgment in the text here. God provides some means to execute judgment today, and there is also going to be a future judgment tomorrow. Look down at verses 6 through 8. We're going to come back to verse 3 in just a moment. He says, For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. We noted the change in voice in verses 2 through 5. We see another change in voice. This is apparently a theological reflection on God's promises. Judgment doesn't come from the east or the west. In other words, it's not up to man ultimately to bring judgment. It's not for man ultimately to bring judgment. That is for the Lord. It is God who executes judgment, putting down the one and lifting up another. Just as it was for Israel, we do have human judges. We have human governments given by God to bring about judgment today. For Israel, it was often the Gentile nations who would come in to bring the judgment of God on them for their sin. In Romans 13, Paul makes it clear that God has provided human government in general to provide real-time judgment for transgressors. Romans 13, 1 through 4, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Human government are the first avengers. That was a bad joke, I'm sorry. Um, But human governments are sent by God to bring judgment today. They don't do it perfectly. Certainly they don't do it perfectly. It's because they're made up of imperfect people. They're made up of sinners like us. But God has established human government for the purposes of bringing judgment today. So demands to overthrow or reject human government is wrong. 
It is unbiblical, period. Yes, there are things that should change. Yes, there are things in place, whether they be laws or certain systems that facilitate oppression and racism. But overthrowing government, those who are sent for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, is wrong. There are movements like that, movements which call for the dismantling of God-ordained government. There are, these are movements that the church should not be a part of. They seem to mean well with calls for revolution and reformation, but upon investigation, closer investigation, these movements are clearly unbiblical. On the face of it, who wouldn't agree that black lives matter, right? You take a look a little bit more at some of their website material, and you see just on their what, what, you know, what, what are we all about page, they state clearly that they began as a call to action in response to state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. They say that their, the impetus for this commitment was and still is rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us by the state. And so what's the focus there? The focus is the state. What are they saying? The state is the problem. Is that always true? No, it's not always true. It's not always true that the state is the problem. Absolutely, right? And removing the state, overthrowing the state, getting rid of the state is not going to solve the problem because you're still going to have sinners to deal with. They were enraged by the death of Trayvon Martin, they mentioned. They're also saying that they're inspired by a 31-day takeover of the Florida State Capitol. These are things that we shouldn't be a part of. These are things that we should not affirm. My point is that we have to be careful when we decide to engage and involve with organizations outside of biblical perspective. Organizations and we don't necessarily know if they have a biblical perspective. And there are many other things that I could read as I was doing some investigation um, that, that make it clear that organizations like this are not organizations that we should be a part of. We just have to be careful with that. Again, it's understandable um, to want to see something like that go forward, to want to affirm something like that. But when it boils down to it, they're a man-centered organization, just like any other. And so just like any other man-centered organization, they're going to be in accord with the values of the world today. And often the values of the world today subvert biblical values. It's one of the things that we say, and I appreciate that um, Al Mohler mentioned this as he was reviewing some of this information in our statement of faith. We make it clear that we should be, um, when necessary, um, using means and methods. I'm just reading this from our statement of faith. Using means and methods for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men, we say that those things can be truly and permanently helpful, but only when they're rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we say a little bit later, in order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, but always being careful to act in a spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. And it's that last part that we really need to be careful with. We do not as a church do ourselves a favor by jumping on the world's bandwagons and pleas for justice in the ways that the world pleads for justice simply because it sounds good. When we affirm those things, we end up affirming much more than we desired. Now listen, 
There's no black church or white church, okay? I think that's utter foolishness when I hear people talk about that. There's only one church. There's only one family of God. What I'm about to say is only for the purposes of communication, to make clear what I'm trying to say to you all today, okay? Our white brothers and sisters do not need to go out of their way to proclaim that black lives matter just to make us feel better. It's not necessary. It doesn't help. Or to apologize for the sins of your forebearers. Likewise, it does no good to go in the other direction, to initiate and support other such movements, even movements like Blue Lives Matter, even though, again, it's a worthy cause. But just to make a statement, that only fuels the fires. We, the church, of all people, should be able and willing to engage one another in conversation when it comes to these issues. Because whether you, as a white brother or sister, have any semblance of racism in your heart, your black brother or sister may still be hurting from what's happening in the nation around us. We may still feel a certain way about it, either for ourselves or for a loved one. That kind of conversation within the church ultimately ought to be focused on what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We've checked in on one another on issues of COVID, right? We can check in on one another on these issues. And it may not be a big issue for your brother or sister who's sitting next to you, but my point is that we shouldn't feel awkward about it. We shouldn't be confused about what to do because we're a family. And what do families do when we're going through difficult times, when we're struggling with something? We talk to each other. We engage each other. We put our arms around each other and we tell each other, I love you. And we remind each other of what's true. God loves you. God loves us. God is going to take care of us. God is going to make this right. I know you may feel a certain way about this right now. And that's okay. But the Lord, our God, will take care of us. Again, we are his workmanship, a beautifully crafted poem to the world of what unity truly looks like of what it looks like to bring together people from every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth to love and serve one another, to love and serve him. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through who? Through Christ. He says, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is what God is doing in the world today. The world is looking around, looking for some way to bring about unity, but it will never find it apart from this, apart from what God is already doing in the church of Jesus Christ. I think that if we spent more time being the church family that we are and engaging the issues of our day as a church family, then we would have more people in the world crying out to us, what must I do to be saved? Because we have what they're looking for. But again, it's not wrong to feel like you want justice. It is wrong to demand justice on your terms or in the terms of the world because we are not God. God is a judge. His judgment is faultless, flawless. Ours will forever be tainted by sin. Now, we know that God has provided some ways to execute his judgment today, like human government, 
or we didn't touch on this, but even things like natural consequences, right? You run in the house, for example. We tell the kids all the time, don't run in the house. They run in the house sometimes, and they bump into furniture. They get bruises. They trip. They fall. They get bruises. I don't have to say anything because they got the consequences already. There are times like that when we get those natural consequences, right? God provides those real-time consequences, but sometimes those are not enough. Sometimes human government fails to do its job. Sometimes those natural consequences don't seem significant enough. When it appears that the offender has escaped judgment today, we're also encouraged to remember that there is a future judgment. Now, that's implied in verse 2. Look back at verse 2 just for a second. He said again, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. Paul speaks similarly in Acts chapter 17 to the philosophers at Athens. He says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through righteousness. That day is fixed on God's calendar. He has an X mark on it. We can't see it. We don't know it. But he sees it. He knows it. And that day is coming. Period. Back again in our text, verse 8, he also implies the same thing. He says, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The final judgment is coming. It will be final, and it will be complete. Each man will be repaid what he is due for the deeds done in his body. Scripture is very clear about that. The cup is a metaphor for judgment, and the wicked of the earth are the proud that he spoke of earlier. Those, he says, will drain that cup of judgment down to the dregs, they will drink it all. They will endure his judgment to the end. Except in biblical theology, there is really no end for the judgment of God, the final judgment. We often see that repeated refrain that their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. That is the eternal judgment of God. Their judgment will go on for eternity. The final state of creation of God is fixed. Those who go into judgment will abide under the wrath of God for eternity. And that should make sense, right? Because we've offended a, an eternal God. And the, the sin of offending an eternal God demands an eternal consequence. There's eternal honor due to him, right? There's a difference between striking me and striking the president of the United States. You strike me, maybe I hit you back. Maybe I just call the police and file a report, right? And then we just go about our merry way. You, Strike the, you get close enough to strike the President of the United States, you'll probably get a couple warning shots in your back. Or at least you'll be spending a significant amount of time in prison, right? Because there's much more honor due the President of the United States, so the consequence to him is going to be greater. Likewise, God is eternal. God is holy. And so the consequence for offending a holy, eternal God has to be eternal. And that's what we're talking about here. They're going to drink it down to the dregs. They'll receive the full measure of his judgment. For the Christian, Christ himself has drank from the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. We remember Jesus praying in the garden that the cup would pass, but ultimately relenting to the will of his Father. It was the Father's will that Jesus drink down the full measure of his wrath to the dregs as he hung on the cross for us. Again, we sang the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. How did he do that? He did that on the cross. He did that by drinking down the full measure of God's judgment for us. 
And that fact in and of itself should make a difference for us in how we view injustice. As believers, we have to recognize that ultimately justice is the Lord's to give. And we have to trust his promise to bring justice. It is something that he does that we can't expect from anyone else. Ultimately, it is in the hand of God to humble the proud. It doesn't matter what laws are passed. It doesn't matter who takes over as the person in charge or who resigns. Human government is given by God for our good, but we know that it falls short, again, because it's made up of fallen humanity. And we can't put our hope in humanity alone to solve those issues. Our greatest hope is that God will come and that God will judge, and he's promised to do that. As I said before, we must remember the promises of God. God promises to judge, but he also promises to keep, to keep the world, to see that things never truly get out of control. Look back at verse 3. I said I'd get back to it. It says, when the earth totters and all of its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I held off on verse 3 because I think we needed to see the rest of the section to understand how he keeps. He keeps the world from getting truly out of control by the judgment he brings. Again, we may feel like the world is out of control, like the sum total of all that we see around us, those who are innocent of any human crimes having their lives taken even those who are supposed, by those who are supposed to protect and serve, the riots, the looting, the calls for dismantling the police, a major U.S. city, a section of a major U.S. city declaring itself independent from the United States, which is just utter foolishness to me. I can't understand why that's happening right now. But, but we know that God is still in control, and we know that God is going to bring justice. He's going to bring judgment. They will receive what is due. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow, but it will come. And while he's keeping the world from falling apart, he does sustain the world by his power. We hear that in scripture. He's also keeping us in the midst of it. Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that we are kept by the power of God through faith for that salvation that is going to come in the last time. We are kept in the midst of all that happens in the world. We are being kept by God, by his power. That leads us to our last point. Again, when we feel that justice has run rampant, when we feel that the world is out of control, we need to reorient ourselves as biblical thinking Christians to first rejoice in the person of God. God is good and he does good to his people. Second, we need to remember the promises of God. God will judge. Even if his judgment is delayed, he will judge and he will keep us until that last day. Third, we must rest in the plan of God. That is what these last two verses in the text represent. A summary of the whole psalm, a summary of the plan of God, both to judge the wicked and to bless those who are his. Look again at verses 9 and 10. He says, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. We're brought back to praise in this final section. In the final analysis, we're brought back to the same place we began in this psalm. He starts with praise and ends with praise. Knowing that all of these things are true, knowing who God is, knowing that he has made such precious and magnificent promises to us. Even though I might feel like the world around me is completely out of control, I can still praise him. I can still put my confidence in him. I can still rest in him. I still hope in him. Trust him for that. Trust him that his judgment is coming. That's how we rest. That's how we cease from striving. That's how we cease from having anxiety that the world around us is going crazy. Even as the world around us does bite and devour itself to try to solve the issue of injustice, how we get to enjoy that sleep that God gives to his beloved that we mentioned in the last psalm that we looked at is just by trusting in his plan. 
God has promised and can accomplish something that no one else can. Again, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, he says, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. That is God's plan. That is his purpose. He's declared it, and it will happen. My confidence in times of injustice is that we have a God who is just and who will judge both by condemning the wicked and exalting the righteous. And that's the other part of the coin that we want to see, right? We don't want to know just that God's going to judge the righteous, but we also want to know that he's going to reward those who have done what is right. We, don't, we want to know that he's going to reward those who are his. And that's what God promises in his day, when that day comes. That day that's marked with an X, God is going to bring both judgment to those who have done wickedly and also blessing to those who have done right, to those who are his, to those who are called according to his purpose. That good that he promised will happen in that day. Again, even if we never see it today, we know that it's going to come. As believers, we know that ultimately this was accomplished by the cross. God has cut off the horn of the wicked. The wicked seek to exalt themselves above others. They seek to exalt themselves above God. But before the cross, there's nothing for which man can boast. Christ went to the cross because of our sin, because we were dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. We were wretches, as we sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch like me. Each and every one of us. Christ died on the cross because we could not face the wrath of God. We would not endure. And it is only in Christ that we experience the grace of God. Thus, there's nothing further in which to boast save in Christ alone. Paul said, far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is the only dividing line left in the world on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you either believe that or you don't. Either by faith you believe God and are given the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, which is paid for by the cross, or you see the cross as foolishness, a myth, or just a terrible end to the story of a good man. Either you will have had the justice due to your sin in breaking the laws of your creator, satisfied by Jesus Christ on the cross, either he will have drank down to the dregs the wrath of God, the full cup of God's wrath for you, or you will have that to look forward to when you stand before him. Jesus, the one through whom God will judge the world, says this at the end of Revelation. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone else who practices falsehood. Jesus said, I am coming quickly. Will you be ready? Believer, cling to this truth as you look around for justice in this world. Rejoice in the character of God. He is our greatest good, and we have him. He's near to us. Remember the promises of God to bring judgment upon the wicked, and that ultimately he'll keep you until that day. And rest in the plan of God as we wait for it to unfold for our ultimate good. Let us pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this word that reminds us that you are the judge. Thank you for your word that reminds us that you are God and you are good. You are our greatest good. 
Thank you for the word that reminds us as believers that we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We may not see righteousness, your righteousness on earth today, but there will be a day when we will dwell in a world that you create over again, a world that will be characterized not by wickedness, fallenness, sin, injustice, but a world that will be characterized by your righteousness. And we pray that your kingdom and your son, the Lord Jesus, would come quickly. Amen.